Welcome to this week's sermon from Amblecote Community Church. Amen. Thanks, Phil. So it's my duty this morning, being Palm Sunday, it's my duty, responsibility, to try and lay before you the kingship of Jesus. And uh, we're going to do that by um, entering into some biblical theology. Hopefully, all our theology that we preach on a Sunday is relatively biblical. But by biblical theology, what I mean is that we are going to trace the theme of kingship through a number of different biblical texts. To try, and I hope, my, my aim is, hopefully, that the full significance of what was happening when Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the donkey and the crowds laid the palm branches and their cloaks down, I hope that the full significance of that, or at least more of it, might come home to you. But I hope beyond that as well, that this wouldn't just be a better understanding of what happened, but that the kingship of Jesus would move you in a fresh way this morning. So that's my prayer. That's my hope. To get us started, uh, I want us to watch another video that uh, Dave Hadley did for us uh, a couple of carol services ago. Um, because it, uh, in about four minutes, traces about a thousand years of Jewish history and sets a bit of context in the hope for a king. So if we can kind of knock the lights out and play that video, that would be great, guys. Thank you. I will make for you a name like the name of the great ones of the earth. And I will appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may dwell in their own place and be disturbed no more. And violent men shall waste them no more as formerly. From the time that I appointed judges of my people Israel and I will subdue all your enemies. Moreover, I declare to you that the Lord will build you a house when your days are fulfilled to walk with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, one of your own sons, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for me, and I will establish his throne forever. So, what went wrong? After David's son Solomon died, his kingdom split in two. After two centuries of conflict, the northern kingdom was captured by the Assyrians and the people were exiled. 140 years later, the southern kingdom was overthrown by the Babylonians and the temple was destroyed. The Persian kings Cyrus and Darius allowed some of the Jews to return to rebuild the temple. Ezra and Nehemiah returned to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem and teach the people the law. But after this, the prophets fell silent. Malachi was the last to speak. He prophesied, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. And the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight, behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And then the prophets dried up. Israel did not become free, but remained subject to foreign rulers. Israel had no king. David's line seemed to have failed. The brutal Seleucid king Antiochus IV 
who ruled over Israel, sacked the temple, tore down the walls of Jerusalem, made it illegal to keep the Jewish law and pain of death, took over the temple and instituted sacrifices to the Greek god Zeus and destroyed the book of the law. Even the priesthood was corrupted. The office of high priest was sold to the highest bidder. At this attempt to destroy their way of life, some of the Jews revolted under the Maccabees. Their guerrilla warfare eventually earned them some control of Israel. But this was always unstable and was finally stamped out when the Romans invaded under Pompey. By the first century, Roman rule was direct and brutal. Would-be messiahs were crushed. Israel was a vassal state with no king. They lived under violent men, a broken priesthood and no prophetic voice. Would God keep his covenant? Would his promises come true? Or would Israel remain in deep darkness? He is a bit clever, Davies, isn't he, to put that sort of thing together. The reason I wanted you to see that is that you don't have to have held on to all the information in that video, but that video takes you on a thousand-year whistle-stop tour from when God spoke to David and promised him that there would be a king coming from his line who would uh, sit on the throne. And, um, uh, and then what happened after that the sort of disintegration of Israel and the lack of a king. The point I hope that you can take from this is that the Jews had been promised a king and they needed a king and they longed for a king, a king who would deliver them and rescue them. He would establish the kingdom of God, not the kingdom of Rome or the kingdom of Babylon, but the kingdom of God. And the Jews who lived at the time of Jesus were desperate for this. There had been centuries now of the non-fulfillment of the promise, of the non-coming of the king. And they were desperate for when the Messiah king, the promised Messiah king was going to come. Let's look at a few of the texts that articulate this hope, that articulate this promise. They're all going to be on the screen. And I'm going to go through a lot of texts this morning. So you're very welcome to turn to them. But... Feel free not to, um, if it if it'll be more trouble for you than it's worth. Zechariah, let's have the first one up, John. Zechariah nine nine and ten, the prophet said this: Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion! Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem! Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous, and having salvation is he, humble, and mounted on a donkey on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And the next one, I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem and the battle bow shall be cut off. This king shall speak peace to the nations. His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. This is Zechariah prophesying about the coming of the king prophesying about God rescuing his people, judging their enemies. And he speaks of the day when this true king will come, having salvation, able to save. And he speaks of the peace this king will bring, not just the peace of Israel, 
but the peace that goes from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. This is talking about the spread of the kingdom of God and the rule of God over the whole of the earth. Let's go to Malachi. As we go through these prophecies, you'll notice how they pile up. Each one adds something new. Each one adds a different bit of the picture. Malachi prophesied this. Behold, I send my messenger. He will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. And the Jews in the first century said, how long, O Lord? It's been five, six hundred years. But behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. But who can endure the day of his coming? And he can stand when he appears, for he's like a refiner's fire. This is the one that was in Dave's video. This is the prophecy that speaks of the coming of the king, but not just of the king who is a human king who's the Messiah, but Malachi sounds the knee note of this is somehow the Lord who's going to come. The king who's going to come and establish the kingdom of God is here the divine himself somehow. It's the Lord himself who's going to come to his temple. And he sounds another note as well, a note of warning. But who can endure his coming? This king is not going to be a paper king. Someone to be ignored. Or someone who's not going to make a difference. This is going to be a king with power. Coming to judge and to save. Let's look at one more. There's loads. There's loads. It's like the Old Testament. But let's read one more. This time from a text you'll probably be more familiar with from Christmas starts, there will be no more gleam for those who are in anguish. You should be thinking, Isaiah 9. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. And Isaiah starts to prophesy about the coming of peace, the stopping of war, the removing of disgrace. And when we get to verse 6, he says this, this is what's going to happen. To us, a child is born and a son is given. And the government will be upon his shoulder. And his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Mighty God. Again, that's odd, isn't it? The human Messiah is going to come and be called Mighty God. Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end. On the throne of David and over his kingdom. On the throne of David. This is the prophecy. The Davidic king, the king that's meant to come on the throne of David over his kingdom, to establish it and uphold it with justice and righteousness from this time forth forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So you see the expectation. This is the expectation. This is the promise. This is the hope that this king will come and that these things will come to pass. And this hope has been disappointed for generation after generation after generation. And then Jesus came. Jesus came. Came as this long-awaited king. Many aspects of his life show that he came as this king self-consciously. You know, it wasn't just that other people thought Jesus was this king. He, he acted provocatively and deliberately to claim that he is this king. This long-awaited, long-promised king. 
We're going to look at two today, the account of Palm Sunday and the account of his trial. So if you're going to turn to any bit of scripture yourselves, this is the one to do. Matthew chapter 21. We're going to read Matthew's account of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. Just give you a minute to flick there. Matthew chapter 21. And we're going to read through the first 13 verses. So Jesus comes. And when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage to the Mount of Olives, which is like a five-minute jog outside Jerusalem, then Jesus sent two disciples, saying to them, Go into the village in front of you, and immediately you'll find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. You know, it's not that Jesus was tired and needed a lift. He's close to Jerusalem. This is a deliberate thing he's doing. Untie them, bring them to me. If anyone says to you anything, you shall say, the Lord needs them, and he'll send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Zechariah that we've already read this morning. Say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. He does this on purpose. The disciples went and Jesus had directed them and did as Jesus had directed them. They bought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread their cloaks on the road and others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. Both these actions symbolize the kingship of Jesus. We've got to know this, that taking your cloak off and putting it on the ground under someone else wasn't just like, the road was dirty. This was, a, this was what you did to recognize and receive the authority and the kingship of someone else. So you can see this in the Old Testament. When um, King Jehu, one of the kings of Israel, when he becomes king, um, he's sitting with his other, the other military commanders and his peers. And when the prophet comes and says Jehu is to be king, everyone else takes off their cloak and puts it under Jehu's feet. Because what they're saying is, I'm not going to challenge this. I receive you as King Jehu. You know, a bit like, you know, the tradition of the king is dead, long live the king. Do you know what I mean? It's the, it's the receiving the authority of the king. So that's what the crowds are doing. They're taking their cloaks off to say, we receive your authority and your claim as king. And the palm branches are a symbol of Jewish nationalism. Say, when the Jews revolted, as they did all the time, the palm branch was one of the symbols. They printed it on their coins they had it on their banners. It was one of these symbols of the kingdom of God, the kingdom of Israel. So their cloaks and their branches are to say, Jesus is the king. We receive him as the king. So that's what's going on. And the crowds that went before him and those that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Could have said anything. Hosanna to the son of man. Hosanna to the prophet from Galilee. But no, Hosanna to the son of David, because that's the king. That's the king. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And then what happens? Do you remember Malachi's prophecy? The Lord whom you seek is coming, and he comes to his temple. So Jesus comes in, deliberately riding on a donkey, with his followers deliberately spreading cloaks and palm branches on the floor, and 
he entered Jerusalem and the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is Jesus of Nazareth, the Galilee, whatever. And Jesus then did what? Entered the temple. He went straight to the temple. The Lord whom you seek will come to his temple. And he drives out those who saw, sold and bought in the temple. He overturned the tables and he said, it's written, my house should be called a house of prayer but you make it a den of robbers. Jesus knew what he was doing. He was claiming this kingship. And we see this again in his trial. And I'm not going to, um, I haven't got all of this passage on the screen, but maybe as I read through this, you might, you know, if you want to, like maybe even close your eyes and just imagine, just imagine this encounter between Jesus and Pilate. Try and kind of enter in to what's going on. When Jesus has, after this, been betrayed and arrested, hauled before the Roman governor Pilate, the Gospel of John tells us this. Pilate entered his headquarters again and called Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? See, Pilate knew what this was all about. Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Do you say this of your own accord? Did others say it to you about me? Pilate answered, am I a Jew? Your own nation and the chief priests have delivered you over to me. What have you done? And Jesus answered, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. But my kingdom is not from this world. Then Pilate said to him, so you are a king. Jesus answered, you say, that I'm a king. For this purpose I was born, for this purpose I've come into the world, to bear witness to the truth. Everyone who's of the truth listens to my voice. And Pilate said to him, what is truth? And then he went back outside to the Jews and said, I find no guilt in him. But you have a custom that I should release one man for you at Passover. Do you want me to release to you the king of the Jews? And they said, no, we'll have Barabbas. Like Jesus was definitely claiming to be a king, but not like other kings. Not a kingdom that's visible in national boundaries and huge armies like most other kings. But he certainly claims to be the king and Pilate knows it. That's why he speaks like he does to the crowd. But the Jewish crowd rejects Jesus as their king. So Pilate took Jesus and flogged him. And the soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head and arrayed him in a purple robe. Why purple? Because purple's the royal color. They mock Jesus as being a pretender to the kingship. When the truth is, he's the king of all creation. So they came up to him saying, Hail, King of the Jews. Struck him with their hands. And Pilate went out again and said, I'm bringing him out to you. You may know that I find no guilt in him. So Jesus comes out in front of the crowds, wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate says, Behold the man. And when the chief priests and the officers saw him, when the Jews who had waited hundreds and hundreds of years for the King Messiah saw him, 
they shouted, crucify him. And Pilate said to him, take him yourselves and crucify him, for I find no guilt in him. And the Jews answered him, we have a law, and according to that law, he ought to die. Because he's made himself the son of God. And when Pilate heard that statement, he freaked out. He was even more afraid. And he goes back to Jesus and he says, where are you from? Where are you from? And Jesus didn't answer him. And they have a conversation then. And then Pilate seeks to release him. But the Jews cried out, if you release this man, you're not Caesar's friend. For everyone who makes himself a king opposes Caesar. Well, that's true. So Pilate comes, sits on the judgment seat. And he said to the Jews, behold your king. They cried out, crucify him. And Pilate says, shall I crucify your king? And then the chief priests say this. We have no other king but Caesar. No other king but Caesar. So he delivered him over to be crucified. No other king but Caesar is the ultimate betrayal of the Jewish hope. The whole point was they did have another king. He was to come. He was to deliver them from Caesar, from sin, from all oppression. But the crowds chose the worldly, oppressive, brutal King Caesar over the true king. The one who is king of all creation, whose kingdom is not of this world. Like, just hold that for a minute. Jesus clearly came as the king. Everyone knew he was coming as the king. The Jewish king, yes, but then more than that. The king whose kingdom is not from this world. The king who is the Lord God, who is king of all creation. This is why Pilate was speaks. Pilate knew how to handle your average Messiah. He turned up and claimed to be the king of the Jews. He'd seen off a few of them already. Jesus was different. So he came as king, but was rejected by most. Some accepted his kingship. And some recognized his authority. But most of them didn't, and they killed him. And we could stop there for fear of kind of stealing the thunder of Easter Sunday. But a biblical theology of kingship can't stop there because Jesus didn't just come as king back then. That's not our claim. It's part of our claim. But the rest of our claim is that Jesus reigns as king now. Because death wasn't the end for him, was it? That's what we celebrate at Easter. After three days, he rose from the dead, spent time with his followers, and then ascended back to the right hand of God. And his ascension to the right hand of God is his enthronement as the king over all creation. I would love to preach about the doctrine of the ascension. And we've not done it this year, but maybe next year, over a couple of Sundays, will preach about what the ascension is all about. Because it's not about Jesus just disappearing somewhere. It's about him claiming the throne. Reigning over all things. I can't preach it through in detail now, but we're going to look at a couple of Bible passages. And then we're going to wrestle with this personally. 
After Jesus had ascended, taken the throne, uh, the Holy Spirit comes and fills the disciples while they're in Jerusalem. And And Peter stands up and he preaches to the Jews in Jerusalem. And as part of his sermon, he says this. Let's uh, pop the axe one up, John. He says this. He says, Brothers, I say to you with confidence about the patriarch David, that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn an oath to him, that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of Christ, that he wasn't abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, And of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend to the heavens, to the heavenly throne, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, the Jesus whom you crucified. Peter says he is not like David. He's in David's line, but David reigned and died and stopped reigning. Jesus came and died and rose and was enthroned and now reigns over all creation at the right hand of God. God's made him both Lord and Messiah. We see this in Paul's letters as well. Let's look at two brief examples. In Ephesians chapter 1, while Paul's praying for the church, he prays that they may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, and what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe, according to the working of his great might, that he worked in Christ. Here we are when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet and gives him as head over all things to the church, which is his body the fullness of him he fills all in all. He raised him from the dead, seated him at the right hand, and where he reigns, and all things are under his feet. Philippians. I want this to go in, okay? Philippians. Have this mind among you, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, took the form of a servant, born in the likeness of man, found in human form, humbled himself, obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. Do you see this? One more, this time from the letter of Peter, chapter 3. I think this one's up as well. Well done, John. Baptism, which corresponds to this, now saves you, not as a removal of dirt from the body, but an appeal to God for a good conscience through the resurrection of Jesus Christ, who has gone to heaven and is where? At the right hand of God. 
on the throne with angels and authorities and powers having been subjected to him. You can't get clearer than that. So let us not doubt the claim of the Bible, the claim of those that knew Jesus, the claim of these first Christians. They were clear. Jesus came as king and he reigns as king and will continue to reign until all creation is made subject to him. For now, much of creation is still in rebellion against his rule and his reign. But he will reign until he rules over all. This is the ongoing growth of the kingdom of God. That's what the king, the ongoing growth of the kingdom of God is Jesus increasingly ruling over what he reigns over. You can't see its boundaries. It's not a kingdom of this world. You can't see the boundaries of the kingdom of God. You can't identify it with a nation state or with one group of people. It doesn't work by domination and cruelty and manipulation and coercion like worldly kingdoms. But it grows and it conquers by love and sacrifice and self-giving and surrender and suffering and service. His kingdom is not of this world, but it's far more real than these earthly kingdoms that rise and fall. Read your history books. They'll come and go. But the kingdom of God endures and will endure beyond this life into the resurrection, not just this age, but the age to come. So, for us today then, eh? I've dragged you through about a dozen bits of the Bible. Is this just a Bible study? Well, it's not for me. It's not just a Bible study for me. You see, when I read these things, I can see that although Jesus was the king and came as king, most people didn't receive him as king. And in the same way, although Jesus now reigns as king over all creation and comes to each one of us, to you and to me, comes to you as king, we have to ask ourselves, do I receive this Jesus as king? Is my cloak on the ground? Is the kingdom of God his rule and his reign? Is the kingdom of God reigning in my life? Do I live through Monday and into Tuesday and through Wednesday under the authority of the king of all creation? Does he have my allegiance? That's the question I lay before you this morning. Do you receive him? as king because it's one thing to see that the bible claims that jesus is the king that's one thing it's one thing for you to see that i receive him as king that's one thing it's an important thing for you to even see that jesus is the true king over all creation that's an important thing but it's something else altogether to receive him as your king. That's different. Altogether different. 
And it's entirely possible to call yourself a Christian and yet not to submit to the kingship and the rule of Jesus in your life. It's a contradiction. It's problematic. But it's entirely possible. It happens all the time. shouldn't be the case. And yet it happens all the time. Because you guys know this, don't you? Being a Christian is not just about attending church and believing God exists. We know that, don't we? All that kind of stuff. Being a Christian is about surrendering your life and giving your allegiance to the true king of the world. Think of baptism. Being a Christian is a life of obedience and service. Let's get that clear. When we're baptized, you know, when we come to follow Jesus for ourselves and we have this great public sacrament where, you know, you stand in the water, ready to enter the family of God. What do we say? Remember, we're asked, do you confess your sin? Recognize and confess your sin. And we say, yes, we acknowledge who we are before God. And then we say, Do you receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior? And we say yes. We say yes. We receive him not just as Savior, the one who forgives our sins, sets us free, reconciles us with God, gives us eternal life. He is that, but he's more, isn't he? We receive him as Lord, Master, King the one whom we now obey and serve, the one who calls the shots. So, you know, if you're a Christian this morning, is the kingship of Jesus evident in your life? Is it? Is it evident in your life? Is it evident in the way we use our money? Is it? Do we give faithfully to ministry here in the church family, to mission, to the poor? You know, if we were to examine our bank statements together, is the kingship of Jesus evident in our bank statements? Is it? Is it evident in the way we use our time and the way we direct our attention? Are our weeks marked by a conscious intention to obey the commands of Jesus and to live the way he teaches us? Is it evident in our priorities? Is the kingship of Jesus shown in the things that go first in our diaries and the things that come first in our days? Is the kingship of Jesus evident in our decisions? Can we point to times of sacrificing our will, of sacrificing our preferences and our pride and our rights for the way of Jesus? Is there evidence of a humility in our life that says no matter how hard it is and no matter what the cost, I'm going to do what he says? These are the questions of whether we receive Jesus as king or not. These are the questions. And that's a challenge. But there's a comfort as well. Because if we do truly receive the kingship of Jesus then we can know the comfort of living under it. Living under the kingship of Jesus. To live under the protection and the guidance and the care of the king who is so powerful, he's beaten evil and death. The king who reigns not only over this present life, but the one to come. 
the king who's perfect love, who knows exactly who we are and leads us into who we're meant to be. The king who loves us so much that as we celebrate this week, he came and suffered and died for us. You know, if there ever was a king who leads from the front, if there, was a, if there ever was a king who's proved his love, it's a great comfort to me to live under his kingship. It's not comfortable. It's not comfortable, is it? You know, it's not comfortable when he asks me to give more than I can afford. Or when he asks me to go and love someone when I feel I've got nothing left to give. It's not comfortable when he points out my pride. Tells me that I've got to go and apologize when I don't want to. Forgive when it hurts. It's not comfortable when he stops me blaming other people and makes me face my own stuff. None of that's comfortable. But it's a great comfort to know that he holds me in his hands. That his love watches over me. That he orders my steps when I can't see what's ahead. That he knows what I need when I don't. That even my worst decisions are within his ability to forgive and to heal and to put right. That's why he's my king. And I'll live for him. And with the help of God, I'll die for him as well. Or you. Is he your king? Let's take a couple of minutes. Now I've got one more video. Tim, do you want to come back up with it? Jesus, you sit enthroned over all creation. But my request this morning is draw near to us now. Help us to be aware, personally aware, of your standing in front of us-ness. Lord, let it be like we are those in the crowd on the way into Jerusalem, that you're there, coming as king. Let us feel that. Who can endure his coming? And he came to Jerusalem, didn't he? And he wept and he said, would that you had known. And I would have gathered you as a mother hen gathers its chicks, but you were not willing. And my appeal to you is that he comes to you. Receive him as king. You know what, we're going to scratch the other video, John. So don't worry about that, mate. And as Tim and the guys create a bit of space for us, then, you know, I think, I think we, need to, we need to talk to him this morning, each of us deal with him about how we're going to receive him you know are you going to as he comes to you as king what are you going to do are you going to say no or are you going to take your cloak off put it under his feet but that's not just an emotional moment on a Sunday 
that's the sort of thing that bites into life Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday and you've got to know that to deal with him I have tried to lay him before you for better or worse now you need to deal with him before you go home so the next Sunday you can come to Easter Sunday um, appropriately should I say